Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Von Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine. In each issue, we feature in-depth interviews, narrated essays, and stories exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. David Zilber is a chef and the director of the fermentation lab at Noma in Copenhagen, considered by many to be the best restaurant in the world. He is co-author, along with the Noma founder and chef Rene Redzepi, of the Noma Guide to Fermentation. I had the pleasure of talking with David this fall and hearing about his fermentation work at the Noma Lab and how the art of preservation is an investment in the future, combining new techniques with ancient place-based food knowledge. You direct the fermentation lab at Noma, the acclaimed Copenhagen-based restaurant run by Rene Redzepi. Perhaps you could start us off and explain both what the fermentation lab is and what role it plays for the restaurant. So it's not normal for a restaurant to have a fermentation lab. It's normal for a restaurant to have a dish pit. It's normal for a restaurant to have a service kitchen. It's normal for a restaurant to have a bar, but it's not normal for a restaurant to have a fermentation lab. But Noma's not a normal restaurant in any sense of the word. Um, Noma started uh, over 15 years ago now. We're going into our 16th year. As a very simple restaurant with, with big ambitions. I mean, at the start, this was in, I guess, November of 2003, many years before I, I ever walked through their doors. Um, and about the same time I actually started cooking, uh, Rene had a team of eight people in a sleepy corner of Copenhagen uh, in Christenshavn, uh, and he was mandated uh, to to build a Nordic restaurant. Um, and for him, that meant exploring the region, taking a research trip to you know uh, the Faroe Islands and Iceland and Sweden and Norway to to understand what was growing out there and to try and invent a cuisine. Um, that fit into uh, the manifesto of new Nordic cuisine. And that was uh, a manifesto created by a group of chefs in the region uh, to cook with things from the region, to identify what was the soul of Nordic cuisine, what was the soul of the history um, that had led up to this point uh, in terms of gastronomy. Uh, before Noma opened, uh, you know, Nordic gastronomy, Danish gastronomy, was nothing but meatballs and potatoes. And anything considered fine dining was you know, it had its roots in the French. Um, but Rene wanted to do things a little bit differently, and he wanted to focus on the things that were growing in the place that they were, Time and Place, which was the title of um, the first proper Noma cookbook. Um, soon into those explorations, in, into the explorations of the wilderness and, and foraging, they realized that they had to do this a little bit more academically, and they had to do it a little bit more structured than just, like, going out, picking wild horseradish, and then asking a random forager, a guy with a van to just bring back enough for a week's worth of services. You know, that would happen and the horseradish wouldn't taste as it did when Rene went out and picked it himself. And then he'd ask, why isn't this spicy? This just tastes like any other herb. He's like, well, this is horseradish, but you asked me to get wild horseradish. And, you know, there's 150 different varieties of wild horseradish that grow in the Nordic region. And Rene was like, Jesus, well, okay, we have to figure this out then because there is no catalog. Uh, and that birthed the Nordic Food Lab. That was a cooperative project in between Copenhagen University and Restaurant Noma to catalog the edibility of, of the Nordic region and to, to figure out 
what was growing where and when, what did people eat, what did they do with it, and how did it make sense in the context of what Restaurant Nomo was trying to do? And to the world at large, you know, how would all of this creation of knowledge, you know, feedback into the world. It, it was meant to be a project that that had a, a purpose and, and served to fill in a gap of knowledge in the world in general. It also conveniently served as Noma's first test kitchen because the researchers in there could mess around with plants and figure out, okay, if you can't eat this, can you, can you manipulate it? Can you turn it into something else? Can you make a stock from it? And all of these little tiny experiments and concoctions would end up being novel new ingredients in, in Noma's kitchen. And pushed it uh, into the direction that it was already going, but uh, at an even more accelerated pace. And through their researchers, you know, eventually they figured out, okay, well, you know, a big part of Nordic tradition is preservation. There's lots of salted fish, you know, uh, salt fisk, lutfisk, fish conserved in salt, fish conserved in lye, all sorts of different ways of preserving foods. And one of them that they happened upon was salted capers. Now, we all understand capers, the, the berry of the caper bush that you would have in a pasta puttanesca or something like that. But people made capers from other things in the Nordics as well, one of them being uh, the buds of wild garlic or ramsons that blossomed uh, in, the, in the late spring. And again, packed in salt. So they started experimenting, trying to make capers. They didn't really think anything of it. They're like, yeah, salty things can be chopped up. They can be strewn through marinades, whatever. That, that seems like a good path to explore. And some of these salted experiments got messed up. Some of them became accidents. Uh, some of them went in with the wrong proportions of salt to uh, vegetable matter and were tucked away and left to sit for years, months really, until one fateful day when uh, an old chef who worked in the Nordic Food Lab, Torsten Villegard, pulled out a bag that looked a little different from the rest. And he's like, oh, I think someone didn't add the right amount of salt to this. He put a spoon in, took out a very murky kind of cloudy looking liquid, and it wasn't just salty gooseberry juice, it was completely transformed. It was lacto-fermented gooseberry juice. Rene tasted it and his world completely changed. It was, you know, full of umami, it was full of depth, it was full of lactic acid, playing alongside the phenolic acids that came from the berries as well, and it was an aha moment, to say the least. That was the opening of a Pandora's box. Because once they figured out what happened there, they're like, wait a second, okay. You know, some of the researchers were like, oh, well, this is lactic acid. That happens because lactic acid bacteria were in there. That's like the same bacteria that are responsible for sauerkraut. And it's like, well, we made a sauerkraut of berries? Well, what else can we make a sauerkraut from? And 15 years later, we have a world-famous fermentation lab in the restaurant. So where did you appear in this picture? When did you start becoming involved in the fermentation lab? So that first inquiry led to a string of others. Uh, it led to, okay, well, if this is fermentation, what else is fermentation? Oh, okay, soy sauce is fermentation. How do the Japanese do that? Oh, what's koji? What's aspergillus arisi? How do they make miso? How do they make rice wine vinegar? How do you make vinegar? What else can you make vinegar from? And so on and so forth. So all of a sudden, all of these doors led to more doors. At the peak of all of these questions being asked, there was a very curious chef who uh, also worked uh, and basically ran the Nordic Food Lab named Lars Williams, an American who had come uh, via the fat duck at the time. Um, and he was really pushing a lot of the fermentation projects forward. Um, he had a very cheeky intern, and her name was Ariel Johnson. Uh, and she'd come from UC Davis uh, from the flavor chemistry program. They linked up and, uh, you know, a chef's curiosity and, and stubbornness met uh, a scientist's kind of uh, sober and measured view. And together, the fermentation program at Noma took its next step. Uh, Renee tasked those two to build 
the first version of the fermentation lab beyond the Nordic Food Lab. And that happened in the summer of 2014, which was just after I started as a cook in the restaurant. That lab was built out of shipping containers, just literally just boxes that came off of a Maersk ship that were chopped up. Patio doors were installed. A very sketchy electrical system wired the whole thing together. But it did its job, and at the end of the day, it was the first and only one of its kind uh, that anyone had ever seen in a fine dining restaurant. Um, Lars and Ariel ran the lab and and kind of took the program to the next level. All the while, I was downstairs drowning in mise en place, getting screamed at by sous chefs for not having my beats ready on time. Um, and it always felt like an ivory tower. You would look over to the lab in the parking lot and be like, what are they doing up there? Like They give me a liter of this stuff every week, and it tastes amazing, but I have no idea what's going on. But after not not very long at all, uh, I was sat down one day uh, after a service. I thought I was being reprimanded. And the head chef um, explained to me that on the behest of Renee and Lars, uh, they wanted to move me into the fermentation lab. Um, and it was not because I was the fastest cook in the kitchen, um, but it was because I was just a full-on smartass. Like people would ask very innocuous questions about why things wouldn't work or or what was the deal with this or that and i was always the one with a very far too detailed scientific answer um, and that just comes from my own curiosity and, and a lifelong love of science and, and just self-education um and that's what i brought to the table at noma uh, i started as a cook but uh like i said after not too long i was moved into the lab and even though i had no explicit interest in fermentation um, to the degree that Lars or Ariel did at the time that I joined them, it was very, very easy for me to catch on because I could make the connections myself. Um, and then the team really thrived. And then just a few years later, you've co-authored this really influential volume, The Noma Guide to Fermentation, that you worked on with Rene Rizzepi. In, in the book, you know, it seems like you're definitely pushing the field of fermentation and experimenting with new techniques but you're also using and integrating methods and techniques that are thousands of years old. Absolutely. And you talk about how, uh, you know, preserving food and creating flavor have ancient roots and cultures all around the world. And it seems like the history of fermentation and the history of agriculture go hand in hand. And that there is this embedded cultural and historical relationship present in fermentation. That it's more than science, I've heard you describe. So can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, Rene felt that we needed to write the book because there was this zeitgeist bubbling. He, he's a very prescient man. He always has his finger on the pulse and he always he has a knack for knowing what people are thinking and what people want. And then challenging those wants um, and thoughts himself. Um, but I remember the day that he burst into the lab and, and me and Lars were sitting there researching a problem. And he said, guys, we need to write a book. And we're like, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, he's like, I, I don't want it to just be my voice. Um, and Lars, cheekily, I think, you know, looking back in hindsight, he was like, I think it's time for me to, to pass the torch. Um, you know, he, he's like, David has a, a great writing style. And then it was just another thing on the bottom of my prep list for the day. It's like, write a book. Um, but it, it was tasked on me. Uh, you know, I'd had numerous contributions to the lab at that point, but, you know, I was working under the tutelage of Lars and Ariel, but it was, uh, on my shoulders to, um, to be the scribe of Noma and, and to put forth, you know, almost a decade's worth of, of knowledge and investigations into the field on, on top of my own personal thoughts and my own personal understanding of fermentation, um, and somehow, uh, make an amalgam of all that. And it ended up as, as the book, um, that I saw that you were reading. It, it is 
a lot more than just a how-to book. It's a lot more than just a cookbook. It is a book that strings a philosophy and an understanding of, of fermentation at a very deep level through recipes um, and explanations and histories and, and researchers. We, we can't say that we invented these techniques. We just run with them and, and try to be creative with them. But we are not, you know, uh, the, the new startup who, who like, um, had some sort of fancy new biotechnology on, on offer. Uh, what Noma does with fermentation is very deeply rooted in tradition and very deeply rooted in understanding of how these things worked in traditional societies and how these traditions have been preserved up until present day. But you are absolutely right. Fermentation, there, there's an f- amazing quote. It's an Italian-American poet. He said, fermentation and civilization are inseparable. And it's absolutely true. It, it, is, it is almost autopoetic. Um, it was self-creating. People stumbled upon these techniques because it was the thing that kept them alive. And in keeping them alive, they kept the reason for their existence alive in the first place as well. You know, if, if, you, if you have two batches of fruit sitting out in your cellar and one of them, for whatever reason, had salt added to it and made a conducive environment for the propagation of lactic acid bacteria to keep that fruit edible longer compared to the batch that just rotted and molded and became disgusting and would poison you, You'd be drawn to the thing, obviously, that wouldn't make you sick. And in doing that, you would keep propagating, culturing, quite literally, both the microbes and the knowledge of the process that made it in the first place. You go back thousands of years, you know, to the the Zagros Mountains in in Iran, and you see um, the fermentation of of wine for the first time. You go back to ancient Babylonia and and Iran and Egypt, and you see the first instances of the fermentation of beer. And you wonder, it's like, who was creative enough to do this? And I don't think it was about creativity. I think it was about inevitability. Because these microbes have always been around us, but the fact that we paired up, you know, like wolves being man's best friend at some point, it it, it is really... uh, a fairy tale story of, of, well, two types of species finding the perfect symbiosis in each other. Well, I, I guess that leads into this term I've heard you use, which I found very intriguing, which was microbial terroir, mm. and how fermented foods have a very distinct flavor profile that depends on a place they are made, even if it's just a few miles away or different in altitude, um, and also that the flavor changes dramatically depending on who's making it that relationship is very present there on all sorts of levels. Absolutely. It, it, it absolutely is. I mean, if terroir is the minerality of the soil, of all the things that have lived before and died in that soil to make that soil what it is, microbial terroir is the exact same thing, um, but on a microscopic level. We, we can't truly understand how complex and how vast and how grand the microbial world really is. And they are absolutely everywhere. We found them, you know, kilometers deep into solid rock. We found them in Antarctica, frozen into ice that's tens of thousands of years old. We find them floating in the upper dredges of the atmosphere. We find them at the bottom of the ocean. It is truly a microbes world. And the fact that, yes, it, you know, the microbes here are not the same as the microbes in France, are not the same as the microbes in, in L.A., are not the same as the microbes in the Yukon, um, really does mean that there are pockets of distinction between these things um and when you when you make food with microbes those things do show up and you do get that instance of terroir uh later on in the book i talk about hand taste it it comes from uh it comes from korean kitchens um 
Sun mat, it's called. And it's it, Korean grandmothers will often speak about it. That's it's the taste of something that's made by hand, of the person that made it. Um, and I equate that to microbial terroir. I equate that to all of the factors that could have contributed to making that population of bacteria on that person's hand exactly what it was at that one time, at that one day. And it is in some ways chaotic and beautiful, and it is in some ways intractable and irreplicable. Um, right. You describe it that there's this unique imprint that can never be found in factory prepared foods that's there when someone uses their hand and is engaged in an intimate way with the creation of food. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is. It really is a beautiful thought. And when you actually, it's a beautiful thought, but when you do it, when you actually make these things for yourself and you like start to taste it and you see it and you feel it, that hits home on a level that is hard to equate with, you know, the line in any text. It is, it is something that you feel in the most fundamental of ways once you understand it. You know, so one thing that, that really struck me in, in reading your book was the layers of relationship present because food plays such a powerful role in defining cultures and people's relationship to place. And we almost take it for granted because it's so ubiquitous now how we can connect a place through food, whether we're traveling or whether we're just in a big city and being able to dive into a culture and their relationship to place through their cuisine. And it's perhaps the most accessible form of, of cultural and place-based expression out there. But it seems like fermentation almost takes us to a deeper level where the connections between people, culture, place, and ecology all come together, including the microbial element. So I'm curious to hear more about your exploration into those layers of relationship that you delved into. Yeah, it's my relationship to fermentation is kind of funny because my relationship to fermentation comes through Noma and it comes through Noma as a chef, like a very, like as a cook, as a chef de partie who has to make mise en place and has to make it perfect and has to make Rene Redzepi happy and has to make his guests happy and has to make something consistent. Fermentation never wants to be consistent. The The idea that, you know, you can equate uh, son mat with, with chaos theory, that, you know, even the slightest permutation or difference between one scenario or another will lead to outsized results months down the line as the thing ages. That's what fermentation is and always has been. And the fact that we have different styles of fermented foods is that idea in the flesh, that son mat is in some way chaos theory lived out at noma it's my job to make fermentation as perfect as possible every single time which seems counterintuitive and it feels like sometimes you know trying to bash a square peg through a round hole but when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object you know they surrender and and i do find a peace with just understanding that sometimes things don't work out but through my travels and through my researches, with this understanding that, no, I am not in complete control, and I try as I might and, and research as I might and, and learn as I might to try and master this thing, it is in some ways beyond me and, and truly wild. But uh, one of the most amazing things that you see uh, when you travel as a fermenter, especially when I was going on tour for the book and promoting it in the United States and Canada, is the amount of things that people would come and show you things that they were proud of, things that they made that were, by any objective means, not that special, not revolutionary, but were so deeply personal to them because they had a hand in creating it. And you would taste it and you would understand that, but you would see that there was something more than just, 
okay, this is a pickled pluot. But it wasn't just that. This was someone's care. Someone had watched this thing grow. Someone told me that it was their first time fermenting and, and you know, they sat and watched the brine change color for seven days until they pulled it out and then added their mom's favorite spice mix in at the end and let it steep so that the pluots would be flavored. And you realize that all over the world, in every culture that's ever existed, this is what fermentation has always been. There is not a civilization on earth that does not ferment, from manioc being turned poisonous to edible in the Peruvian Andes, to the yams that people eat in Papua New Guinea, one of the original centers of agricultural production, to uh, beer in Babylonia, or, or all the cheeses of France for all of their splendor and variation. Um, it is... It is culture. You're absolutely right. It's, it's Food is culture, but fermentation is culture on a deeper level. And I, I love the idea that somehow, some way, you know, these synonyms overlap. That, yes, culture and culture mean two different things to a biologist and an anthropologist, but in fermentation, they overlap completely. Well, I mean, do you think one of the reasons why there has been this fermentation renaissance and such interest um, and this growth of amateur fermenters and interest among professional cooks is because they're trying to bridge this gap um, that's so present now collectively um, from a source of our food and kind of reconnect on a deeper philosophical level to to nature and food and place and culture. I absolutely do. I absolutely do. It's it, To me, it's a bit ironic that such a rarefied and, and I don't want to say that Noma's elite, we try and keep prices low as much as we can. And let everybody in. Um, but, you know, Noma is a rarefied restaurant. It is a fine dining restaurant. And we only, at the end of the day, serve about 100 guests uh, dinner. Um, but I do find it ironic that it should come from a place like that. Um, you know, the sentiment that, yes, you can return to nature and you can you can find other ways of, of knowing the world. People, whether they admit to it or not, like want to in some way return to the things that got us here in the first place growing up in a north american metropolis of toronto six million people the world that i was taught to want that everyone could have that white picket fence that everyone could you know grow and prosper and have 2.5 kids and a dog and a car and a pension at the end of the day that does not seem to be the way the world is unfolding and many people are aware of that Social unrest is one thing, but I think that on a on a personal level where people feel like they can make actions, they do. And and choosing to drink a kombucha over a Coca-Cola is one of those things. Now, it's ironic that, you know, Coca-Cola and Pepsi are now producing kombucha, but hey, what are you going to do? Um, but you're absolutely right. People, I think, want to understand what got us here in the first place. And yes, the the practices of fermentation, things that have only ever existed in the homesteads of families up until like the 1850s have been growing up as a kid. I had no idea how a pickle was made. I had no idea how the sauerkraut on my hot dog was made. I had no idea how my mom's Caribbean hot sauces were put into a jar. These things were kept behind closed doors. They are they are veiled and they were were kept secret, not on purpose, but you had to actively work to figure out how these things were produced. And and fermentation today, this renaissance, it's it's not undergoing a trend, it's undergoing an understanding. People are people are realizing it's like, oh wait, this was always a power that was in our hands. These things were they're there waiting to be used if only you know how. 
And that's, I think, the beauty of it. And I, that's why I think uh, the Noma Guide to Fermentation struck such a chord because it showed people that, yes, this is actually very easy to do and it's not something to be afraid of. And it's not only, you know, um, the Pickle Boy brand Sour Dill. It's everything in the world that you could possibly imagine if, if only you just have that little bit of knowledge and, and the will to do it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for, for what's to come. Because you see the fervor and you see people's enthusiasm and you see people connect to food that they made. Like to ferment something is to invest not only in a project, but in your own future. That's what it was. That's why it kept people alive. And, and I think that's a value that no company could ever sell someone. And it's something that has to be undertaken yourself. And people get that. You know, you've talked a lot about how over the next 50 years, the way we are going to eat is going to dramatically change. And you know, as you said, in the next 100 years, we're barreling into this very uncertain future as we deal with the impacts of climate breakdown and everything that comes with that. Um, how we'll have much less fish or seafood in the oceans and the rivers and access to ingredients will change. So how do you see as a chef and someone, a pioneer in this world of fermentation, are eating habits changing? How do I see our eating habits changing? I think unless we make active choices at a policy level, at a governmental level, about how giant, basically, you know, multinational corporations are allowed to operate and are allowed to produce people's food, that the change that will happen to people's diets will be reactionary when crops fail and when things aren't on grocery store shelves that people expect it to be there. People can take minor actions to, um, you know, engage in community-based agriculture, start cooperative farms, urban gardens or rooftop gardens. These, these are steps to understanding processes and to basically giving yourself training as to how to produce your own food. But it's also a bit naive to think that all of these little pockets could ever make up the amount of calories that go to feed all, the entirety of every developed nation and every underdeveloped nation as well. You know, at the end of the day, those calories come from giant farms. And there's a lot of people who have no interest in committing to, to community-based agriculture or, or participating in a lot of the things that enthusiasts today are, you know, championing and trumpeting. And that leads me to believe that for all of everyone's best intentions, and I'm not trying to be defeatist here, I'm, I'm not trying to be a fatalist and be like, it's, it's all lost and there's no hope. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but I do have to take a pragmatist view and say that the change will be reactionary because companies will go forward as if everything's fine until the day it's not. There's all sorts of reasons why the food system is, is more fragile than it needs to be. People will turn to things that they aren't normally used to eating. If I were to ask my mom, hey, if you went to the grocery store and cornflakes weren't there, what would you get instead? I don't think she would have an answer. I might have an answer, but I would only have an answer because I've worked at Noma for five years and I know what I have a, a vegetable literacy. I can walk out into a field, look around and read the landscape and say, oh, I could harvest that root. OK, I could take these plants and ferment them. OK, I could climb up that tree and pick these plums and salt them and make sure that they would last and not spoil. I know that because I have an education in it. The vast majority of people don't know that because they don't have an education in, in those fields. And they haven't needed to, you know. Big corporations don't make money because they share the knowledge of how to not use what they produce. 
you know, in, in some ways, ignorance is profitable. Um, and, and it worries me that people will be ill-prepared or ill-suited to adapt in a time of need when, when push comes to shove. It's a scary thought, but it's one that I'm hopeful will also scare people into acting and scare people into learning and scare people, more people, uh, a critical mass of people into being able to at least spread and disseminate knowledge should things go bad. Should push come to shove? Should a deus ex machina of technological or biological origin not manifest itself, you know, by 2050? I just hope that there's enough people who took the initiative to understand how the world works to know what to do in a time of need. It's not about prepping. It's not about stockpiling weapons and 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 preserves and canned goods for, for the end times, but it's about being able to adapt and being prepared with the knowledge that we have at our disposal today to make sure that we'll be okay tomorrow. Mm. the practice of fermentation has always been intimately tied to the seasons preserving seasonal food during times of abundance as a means of survival during the winter and as a practical skill to overcome what is an unknown which has always been there in civilization will the crops fail in the future or will things change and now obviously Mm. as you describe you know the uncertainty of our food system for the coming years but it's also been an expression of the season itself, um, uh, an expression of joy and wonder through the preservation of seasonal ingredients at their peak, um, which is something that, as I understand, Noma and your work at the Fermentation Lab really focuses on, too, is, is how to capture that wonder and joy and expression of abundance mm-hmm. uh, in the summer seasons that you eat throughout the year. I, I'm curious what that's been like for you um, Personally, how has your relationship or understanding of the seasons changed since you've been doing this work at the fermentation lab? It has become intimate, you could say. I mean, everyone has a well, not everyone. When I was 20 years old, I had a, a girlfriend from Berkeley, California, and she I was living in Canada at the time, and in Vancouver, and uh, she was studying university. I'm like, why'd you come here? Why didn't you just stay in? In Cali, she's like, I, I came here because I wanted to experience the seasons. I wanted to feel what fall felt like. I wanted to, I wanted to see snow and, and you know, and and know it. So no, I guess not everyone has a, an intimate relationship to the seasons. And with the way that the food system is built today, yeah, you can get white asparagus in January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November. You know, it, it's, it's, it, it truly is a global net that wraps itself around the world. The way Noma works, especially the way Noma 2.0 works in our, in our new installation, working hyper-seasonally, you have this deeply intuitive knowledge of the seasons. When you see the foragers bring in the first steps, you know, you feel a chill on the air before it's actually there. When you when you when you see the first ripe mirabelle plums kind of drop from the tree, you're like, okay, guys, get ready in the lab. We're about to go into full preservation mode, because you know that you have to store these things at their best so that you can use them in January on the seafood menu when there's nothing else outside, and it counts on us to make that menu exciting. So, from a practical point of view, from actually what it takes to do my job and in, in capturing nature at its peak, at its finest. And like nudging my my foragers and being like, no, these plums are not ripe enough. You should have left them on the tree. Like I'm sending these back. You go out tomorrow and you pick me, you know, five kilos of plums from the tree nest next to that. Um, it it is it is something that that kind of gets inside you. And the way I talk about you know plant literacy, being able to walk out into a field um, 
and and read the landscape and say, okay, this is edible, that's edible, I and recognize these things. There's also a seasonal literacy. There's there's a literacy to landscapes. And you'll often hear foragers talk about this when they go into the wild. They know that they're not looking for a plant necessarily. They're not looking for the shape of a leaf. They're looking for an ecotope or a biotope. They're looking for a, a type of nature that has, you know, shade or grass or running water through a stream. Uh, if they know they're looking for a plant that exists in dry soil, they'll look up a hill intuitively. And these are things that you only really truly understand when you do these things again and again and again, and you learn by rote. But this is the fascinating thing is that, you know, for all the explanations of what makes humans human for every anthropologist that has some pet theory about fire or or wading through water or or walking in the african savanna the one that i believe more than any other is that the human brain developed its ability to categorize the world because we had to forage for our survival because we had to make sense of the world more than other animals did and it served our benefit to be able to name and catalog plants i mean every cave painting on earth talks about hunting and gathering and, and keeping people alive through food. Um, and that's something that's incredibly important. And I think it would be worth it if instead of we were taught, you know, instead of being taught civics class in high school, people, people spent six months in the wilderness learning how to keep themselves alive. I, th I think that's more important to someone's long-term well-being, both mental and physical, than any course on what American president was doing what in 1732. <laughs> and, and how has it affected your relationship to time? Because I've actually done a lot of thinking about this. Um, I, you know, I live in California. I don't experience the seasons in the same way that you do in Copenhagen or in Toronto. We don't have snow, but we have changes of seasons that, yeah. that, that, that force you to think about time. Because when you're in peak summer and it's hot, you're present in that moment. And for that moment in time, it's hot and you know it's not going to last because you're moving into fall in the same way that fall has a crisis in the air that's not going to last as you move into winter. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm curious how your relationship to time has shifted or changed or deepened um, through this work. It's funny because the work is one thing, but working at Noma is another. And in some ways, I feel like my five and a half years at Noma has felt like 15 and also gone by like one. Um, but my relationship to time is, uh, yeah, that's a tricky one. Your, your, your analogy to rhythms is, is on the nose, though. I will say that. Um, I, I, I read a lot of books that don't pertain at all to food or, or foraging or, or fermentation or gastronomy. Um, and sometimes a lot of that has to do with, you know, economics. And if you find a smart economist, you know, the first thing they'll say is that most economics is bullshit, but, um, a good one will tell you that, you know, nothing ever lasts, that no things can't just continue perpetually forever. Um, and that in, in, in good times you should prepare for the bad and in bad times you should also prepare for the good. Um, and it is the same sentiment. Um, but yes, once you understand intuitively that, that seasons give way constantly, that nature has rhythms and that everything kind of follows a, a sine wave, um, you begin to realize that everything in, in, in life is, is kind of following that same trend. Um, that nothing just gains perpetually, uh, not plants, not vegetables, not trees, um, 
not people, not relationships, um, and not time. Hmm. You're, you're, you're right on that. So over the last few years, it seems like there's been some major trends developing in food culture towards local food, slow food, and the idea of eating healthy food in high-end restaurants like Noma. And in some ways, it seems like this is an evolution of the organic and sustainable food movements and one that fermentation is playing an active part. Do you think this is um, speaking to a, a deeper need that people have? It, it is. I mean, it's a rhythm again. Like if, if something dominates, an alternative will present itself by people who maybe are contrarians, by people who maybe see things differently. But always by people who think, for whatever reason, that there could be another way. And I don't think that it was ever ill-guided at all to start the slow food movement or to start a restaurant that focused on what grew where it was and chose not to import ingredients or to start a restaurant based around ferments um, like Baru in L.A., which is now sadly closed. But I, I also kind of champion contrarians um, because they, they do fill those needs for people and they do offer up alternatives when they see that, you know, there, there is a dominating tide. They, they kind of find another way um, and give people a crack or a little opening to explore should they so choose. You know, it's, it's not always easy to be the little guy in the face of, of big agriculture or big business. But um, at the same time, it's also really funny when you see, like I said, corporations like Coca-Cola cluing into kombucha and being like, oh, wait, guys, we're, we're late for the party. We should, we should hop on this bandwagon. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. But yeah, um, it, it does fill a need, a need for difference. Well, I guess this leads me to, to my next question in some ways, which was, you know, how do you see the role of restaurants like Noma and chefs like you and Renee in pushing global food culture? Because it seems like now more than ever, you're wielding a great deal of influence to other chefs and restaurants, but also to what ends up on supermarket shelves and produce aisles. What role do you think food influence like yourself should play? What's the responsibility you have with all that power? It's a huge responsibility. Um, and it's funny that sometimes people call me out on Instagram if I post a, a project that I was doing with meat. And I'll say this exact thing. It's like, you have a responsibility. You shouldn't be posting meat. You know, it was a wild animal. It's not like it was a factory farmed cow or something. But um, you get that sentiment. And yeah, maybe sometimes people are out of place. But you get the sentiment that people also expect responsible actions from people in power and are comforted by it when they see it but you're absolutely right i mean noma as an entity which is more than any just one chef it's more than renee even though he is you know the impeller and the driving force and the man who started it all um but in copenhagen 12 years ago you can buy skewer like icelandic fermented milk in a grocery store and today you can you couldn't get uh, sea buckthorn sodas at, at a coffee shop, and today you can. There's all sorts of things that Noma has cooked with and, and kind of made people aware of that then went on to be popularized and, and consumed. Now, it's one thing for a business to, 
I'm obsessed with this analogy of like stealing fire. Um, it's one thing for a business to to steal fire from some of Noma's ideals and ideologies, but it's another thing to just get someone to do something that has no economic impact and send them foraging for their lunch on a weekend. That's powerful. That has no, but that's the point. It has no impact. If you know how to forage properly, if you know how to take from the earth without destroying it, if you know how to feed yourself without causing any harm or, or any transportation costs in a system, that's real impact. If someone gives you a soapbox, just use it for good. And maybe people will call us hypocrites because the majority of our clients fly in to Noma. The majority of our clients are, are affluent enough to be able to fly in and, and spend as much money as you have to for a meal at Noma. But I, I think that the amount of people that we inspire um, with our philosophies and, and through our writings and books and, and social media stories and everything we do to just try and make the natural world that much more exciting, great, like great. So I think yes is a responsibility for anyone in power to, to do the best they can to, to spread a word of goodwill. But I also think that there's a responsibility on the listener's side to, to put their attention where it counts the most and get excited about things that matter on a deep level, not just a superficial one. You know, would you say that you and Renee and, and all the folks at NOMA are, are consciously pushing an agenda that's geared toward more holistic and conscious eating? Or is it a natural evolution of having to create a Nordic cuisine? I think those two things are inseparable to Renee. I really do. I think it's, it is his fiber. Um, I think he had uh, an amazing combination of an upbringing in between Macedonia, like basically living in farmland for the summers, and then Denmark, um, which is also a kind of funny place to grow up, uh, especially through the 80s and 90s. It's it's definitely not what it was back then right now. Uh, it's, it's really blossomed as like a first world nation. Um. But I think that that agenda and and what he strives for are are no different. And I think that everyone who works for him is so attracted to and and empowered by those ideas and ideals that it's you know we're all just trying to share in it. Um, and mm. like some of the most talented people I've ever known in this industry work within those walls. Um, not just the chefs, but but the front of house, the servers, um, you know, the the people who champion and and made an entire cottage industry out of natural wine. It's 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 remarkable to see the passion that flows out of that restaurant, and it's not about pushing an agenda. It's about it's 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 like lived truth. That's that's what it is. It is it is just. Noma's ideals only ever grow and become more Noma. Um, and that is as true as it is for the new restaurant as it was for the restaurant that was just trying to get noticed, you know, uh, 12 or 13 years ago. Um, and I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. Hmm. So you've lived in, in Copenhagen for five years now. Yeah. How has, you know, your relationship to, to Copenhagen developed and changed over the years you lived in toronto for many years you're from canada but you didn't ferment there you didn't have this relationship with microbial terroir and no. seasonal ingredients in the same way foraging you know this connection to to place that you've described 
how has your relationship with Copenhagen changed through this work? Um, well, uh, uh, my girlfriend thinks it's funny, but we can't like go for a walk in a park without me like bending down and picking up the ground and putting it in my mouth. Now, that's how you know a Noma chef is a Noma chef. He's just like outside and just eating whatever's around him. Just being like, how's this taste? That's, that's really funny, but I, I wish more people understood that curiosity because once it's in you, you can't get it out. And once you do it, you just won't stop doing it because there's no distinction in between, you know, outside, inside. I don't know what it is about this North American germophobia where like, the things that came in prepackaged styrofoam plastic wrapped containers that you bought from a sterile, you know, neon lit white freezer section where it's okay to eat. But, you know, uh, your mother would smack you if you put an insect in your mouth. It's, it's weird that there is this mentality and there is this like apprehension about experiencing the world unless it's like prepackaged and boxed off and you're going to a campsite walk for a few hours and you'll be in nature you'll be in wilderness i mean copenhagen's small enough to afford you that maybe la isn't but you know if, if you try hard enough anyone can do that and that's something that i think everyone deserves to have in their mind that you can always just you know make an effort walk in a direction and find nature and just bask in it because it is so much better than a screen in my opinion and that's something that Noma's taught me working at Noma and being in Copenhagen and just a comfort that Danes have um, about existing, I think, in a way, um, has definitely gotten me to uh, see the natural world a little differently um, and and kind of break down the barriers in between, you know, the other and the self, uh, much more so than, than I could have known if I'd stayed in North America and kept working in big metropolises like Vancouver or Toronto. Hmm. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been amazing to get to talk about some of this stuff with you. Really. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our regional essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.